my direction has shifted over time. My, the purpose has been there. It's been fairly consistent, but the things I've done have changed a lot in some cases. I, I thought about rock climbing. I don't know if people can relate to rock climbing, but if you've ever in a challenging problem on a face of a rock and and you get to a place where you feel like, I can't go up. There's nowhere to put my hands next. And so you're kind of like reaching around. You reach way over to the right and you feel this thing and you might tentatively take a step up. You go that direction, you try it, and you realize, oh, this isn't going to get me there. And you, you, you have to sort of work with something else. And you just like... And eventually you go a direction. It wasn't part of your plan, but your upward, your goal was to go up to the top, right? You know, the path isn't always clear. This is Jeff Bastian, and you're listening to Ignited with Meaning. The voice you just heard was today's guest, Paul Horton. Paul is a professor, consultant, and leadership coach working to help individuals and organizations get out of their own way to get good work done. But if you would have asked Paul 20 years ago what he'd been doing now, he never could have predicted that. The truth is, most people don't arrive at their purpose directly. Instead, we try different things, figure out what we're good at, what we love doing, and what the world really needs. Not only is that hard to get right on the first try, it can also be a moving target. What gives you purpose at 25 might be different at 45. In our interview, you'll hear Paul's journey of trying new things. And we discuss the challenge of figuring out how to navigate working somewhere where your purpose isn't aligned with your employer's purpose, even when you're doing good work. And then what to do about that. Paul's story actually reminds me of when I was in my early 20s, working for a nonprofit that had a great mission but seemed to be totally disorganized. In fact, it was working there that inspired me to go back to school to get my MBA so that I could use the most effective business strategies in organizations with a purpose. In many ways, Paul and I share a common desire to live at the intersection of where meaning intersects with the ability to be effective. So without further delay, let's get on to today's interview with Paul Horton. Well, I'd like to start off, you have lived uh, and led a very interesting and purposeful life, but I actually want to start before that. I've, I've heard you say that before you focused on climate issues or what you're doing now, you were sort of bumbling around. What did that look like? <laughs> did I say that? Uh, I guess, you know, uh, I grew up in a suburban part of uh, just outside of Minneapolis and, you know, everything was a complete car culture and... Uh, there was something about that experience in that time that just didn't feel right to me from the get-go. And so I, there, even though I was too young to, to think about it, even in high school, uh, I felt like there was something missing in that. And so from the very moment I started thinking about going off to college and where I was going to go and what I was going to do, I was just thinking of being somewhere different I had a fascination with the physical environment. This idea you could be in a place and walk and bike and, um, you know. So I ended up going to um, Montana, University of Montana in Missoula for my first year of college. And and it's just like, it was to me like probably a lot of young people get to college and, and you just start firing on all these different cylinders, so many different experiences coming at you all at once and you just want to get all of it uh 
at the same time. And I just started volunteering and doing different things. And I obviously didn't have a clear sense of purpose, but there was something emerging around the environment. And I think it was around the physical built environment. There wasn't a lot of uh, clarity to it. And uh, it was just trying things. It, it's funny. I've heard studies that say that that's how most people actually find their purposes by, they don't call it bumbling around necessarily, but trying a lot of new things. So was there a specific moment when you realized that sustainability was what you wanted to follow? What did that feel like? Yeah, there, there actually kind of was. Um, I think there's, like I said, this physical built environment thing, hearkening back to the suburbs I grew up in that just seemed like just seem wrong in some way. Like this cannot be the way people are supposed to to live. And then I think the bumbling phase was that first three years of college. You know, I had probably two or three different majors and, and um, you know, when somewhere in the middle of my third year when I was supposed to be studying for a French final exam, I was playing hacky sack in the center plaza in front of the university. I realized it's time to go. That's when I kind of dropped out of college. And so that's when I did a little bit more bumbling and I just worked different jobs and tried on different things. But at some point I, I felt like I needed to shake things up, I guess is the way I thought about it. I think my notion was I'm going to go on this big trip where I don't speak the languages and I'm going to just, I'm not going to have any plan. I'm not sure how long I'm going to travel for. And so uh, fall of 1985, I just flew to Cancun and couldn't couldn't even count past six in Spanish and uh, and then just started you know exploring and working my way south and through Central America and doing some more volunteering here and there and just got to see some of what was happening in the world seeing how other people lived and that was really impactful for me that ended up being a six month trip because I ran out of money and ended up on a sailboat home <laughs> because I didn't have any money to take a bus wow. And somewhere in there, and I can't honestly say what, what the thing was, I don't remember, but the idea of renewable energy and appropriate technology transfer became this kind of thing. It was a little bit of a, a hook in my brain. Yeah, that was the first experience of kind of having a sense of purpose and particularly in that sort of environmental space. So it sounds like you, when you were in college studying for a French exam, it just didn't feel right. There, there was something where you were like, you know, if I keep going on down this path, I'm just, it's going to feel incomplete and I need to go out and find that other thing. And so you went out and found that other thing. And at some point along the way, you stumbled upon this idea that renewable energy and appropriate technology was just in line. That one did fit. It fit in some way. I guess it was, you know, whether it was the right, the right thing for me, it was the thing. Uh, I had heard through another person about the Evergreen State College Never heard of it before in Olympia, Washington. And they, uh, at the time, they had uh, uh, a year-long intensive program called Energy Systems. It's all you did. Same cohort of students the full year. And you studied about energy systems, of course. And you studied um, about solar design. And you studied uh, uh, policy and uh, other things related to that. And um, and so that's what I I decided I was going to do and and. I found out quickly that I had to have some prerequisites, which were in the in math, <laughs> and uh, math wasn't my strong suit in, in high school, and I avoided it in college, early college. So when I went to this program, I had to get a whole year of of sort of math out of the way before I could even get in this program. Well, that's the interesting thing about purpose. Sometimes <laughs> is that you wind up uh, being willing to do something that you're not 
necessarily inclined to do otherwise um, because it helps you get to that end goal. Yeah, it's absolutely true. What's interesting today is that um, I never use math. I can't even remember what what math and calculus are. So, um, uh, but I, I made it through it and I got into that program and it was a great, great, great program. And it opened up some doors for me. So how did you get from doing this program at Evergreen State College to starting a nonprofit? Yeah, it's a little more, a little more of the testing and the trying. Um, I finished that program and I honestly didn't have a clue what I was going to do. I started volunteering for a local nonprofit, very small. It was called the Energy Outreach Center. And then at the time, maybe I was 26, 27 at the time, the then executive director was uh, about to leave. He suggested I apply for the executive director job in my first response. And this is absolutely true. I said, no way. (laughs) I don't know anything about running a nonprofit organization and I'm not sure I'd like it. And, and, uh, and it's and at some point, not that far into the into it, I decided I'm going to do it. I'm going to I'm going to go for it. And when I did, it was interesting. I just like went all in, and I actually wrote this long letter to the board of directors in addition to my 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 resume. Uh-huh. And I and I got the job. I was like, oh god, oh no! It's like you know the absolute classic flying by the seat of your pants. <laughs> no. So you stumbled upon an, an executive director. I stumbled on it and, and yeah, out yeah. of volunteering. Were you vol- or were you, did you have a placement? Or no, no, I I was just volunteering. Okay, um, and not that much, quite honestly. Uh, I'm 27. I've never run an organization. I used to run a, a painting company, and you know, but nothing like this. So, yeah, it was it was quite a interesting first step into the professional world there. So, how did you get from applying for and getting a job as executive director to then deciding that you were going to start a different nonprofit. My ambitions apparently were, were bigger than that organization. So we started doing work in transportation and we started getting into environmental tax reform. <laughs> it was all these things that were like, did not fit in the container of this organization. In the meantime, I had a friend who I had also uh, done some work with prior and I'd hired him at the Energy Outreach Center a guy named Reese Roth. He had started a nonprofit called the Atmosphere Alliance. He convinced me, he just like very quickly convinced me that climate is the main thing. We very quickly agreed, let's create this new organization. Let's merge these two together and we'll create something new. And that out of that came this organization called Climate Solutions. So Climate Solutions is actually the combination of two former nonprofits. It was initially, yeah. Yep. Okay. Both the boards agreed and suddenly we we're a, a new organization um, oh, wow. At the time, there were no regional climate organizations. We were a regional climate organization focusing on the Northwest. It was almost nobody that had a, a largely, if not entirely, solution-based focus. Um, and so we were a different animal, uh, maybe a little ahead of our times, I think. I think it's interesting that at first you didn't even want to do this executive director job or thought that you were underqualified. You are just volunteering but you went for it. You know, a lot of people might go for something like that and and it just doesn't work out. The board might say, look, we need somebody with more experience, et cetera. But you never would have gotten that unless you tried. So I think that's kind of an important lesson to take away that if, you, if you're passionate about something, uh, don't undersell yourself. Feel free to get in there and figure it out as you go. The other part of that is like, figure out what you're good at and what you're not so good at and surround yourself with people that have those other skills. And, uh, 
it was clear that even though I had done this energy systems program and all that stuff, that the policy pieces and the technical pieces uh, were not my, were ever going to be my area of specialty. What really fascinated me early on was the idea of, okay, this is some kind of a group of people. It's some kind of a, uh, it's an organism that has people in it that are all trying to work towards something. So really caring and tending for that, you know, how can we make this organization better, this organism more effective? Uh, Now, I didn't always succeed in that, but that was really interesting to me. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. When you look back on your um, your tenure with Climate Solutions, what would you say were some of your biggest accomplishments there? Mm. It wasn't just me. In fact, it was probably more Reese, and we also had our uh, research director, a guy named Patrick Mazza at the time. I think we had a really clear strategic uh, mission and strategic plan right from the get-go that, that made sense to people very quickly. It attracted people to it very quickly. We got the name right, for God's sake. I don't know. We just got the name right very quickly. I think Climate Solutions was just a ringer in a lot of ways. And I remember the process of us trying to discuss what the name was. But a lot of things will fall in place when you get uh, the the mission, the vision, the name, the strategic direction elements right. Um, and That's not what I was expecting you to say. Yeah, I was expecting you to say, you know, we passed this policy or that policy, but that's really interesting to have that perspective of actually the biggest win was the, the things as simple as getting the name right. Yeah, to me, what was more interesting, at least when I was there, was we created uh, energy behind something. We broke new relation, ground relationships uh, with people in the agricultural and the sort of rural parts of the Western United States like nobody had ever done. That That's powerful to me. Yeah. And so you essentially ignited uh, a bunch of people behind this vision and, and name and mission, and they were able to realize that. And that wasn't happening at the time. There wasn't a group that was as forward focused on climate solutions. It was more about how do we stop the bad exactly. things? Exactly. How do we stop this? How do we slow that? And, you know, I no criticism to those people. Again, I, I don't know if you, Joanna Macy, who is an inspiration of mine, talks about something called the Great Turning. And it's like she talks about three different things that kind of need to happen at the same time. We need holding strategies. We need to be able to put our fingers in the dike to slow down the leak, you know, and the catastrophic impacts so that we have time to uh, begin to put in place new structures, you know, new models. Um, and then we need to also change hearts and minds. And so for me, the the period of time that I was at Climate Solutions, at least the the part that I was thinking about was the the new structures and the changing hearts and minds. What does changing hearts and minds mean to you? At one level, one of the things you're trying to do is we're trying to uh, create an epidemic where people move from feeling like it's not possible to address this big, hairy problem to actually there's something we can do. We can actually solve this problem. So maybe you've read The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell's book, and that book fascinated me. And I thought a lot about that uh, during the time I was at Climate Solutions. Uh, What Gladwell talks about is, you know, in order to create a successful epidemic, there needs to be a bedrock belief that change is possible. It was like, yeah, we were trying to create that, you know, epidemic. So people move from denial to engagement to sort of moving together towards solutions. That was a big part of my thinking at Climate Solutions. Yeah. 
What did you see as some of the biggest setbacks you had in realizing your vision? Some of the biggest setbacks were, um, there was a moment that you may recall where we had the oil price shock that led to these gas shortages and gas prices went up really high. There was Hurricane Katrina. There was Al Gore's movie. So there was almost like this moment, this right, real teachable moment. People were listening. And as my former colleague, Casey Golden would say, it used to be like we would be standing on a hilltop with a megaphone trying to get people to just pay attention and listen to all of a sudden everybody was listening, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then very quickly that all changed and then nobody was listening again. We thought we were making tremendous headway, uh-huh. all kinds of progress at the policy level. And, and then it almost feel like, you know, when George Bush Jr. came in and everything, everything sort of changed very quickly. Gas price, gas prices went down and people weren't, weren't listening anymore. And it became an uphill battle all over again. It felt like starting right. over again in some uh-huh. ways. If you could wind back the clock, you know, what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you started and how would have that have made a difference? Such a good question. Uh, there's so much that I feel like I know now that I didn't know then. My first nonprofit management experience was, you know, operating seat of the pants. But there was just so much I didn't understand about groups and people and human behavior. It took me a long time to learn that. Yeah. Well, um, you ultimately decided to transition out of your role of executive director. Why did you decide to make that change? Now, the story I tell myself, and I think it's true, is I love that organization. I love what we built. I love the people in it, but it wasn't necessarily my work anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the work, the organization was becoming more policy-driven, and that wasn't really my thing. I had become interested in, in uh, uh, systems thinking and, and uh, organizational sustainability. And at some point, it just became crystal clear it's it's time to go. It's time to let someone else lead it who's got more of the kind of orientation that was needed. And I need to go off and do other things that feel more like my thing. That's really interesting because you were in a situation where even as the executive director, your personal vision for yourself and what you wanted to do was not in alignment with what you saw the organization as needed. If you don't feel like you can live out your vision inside the organization, and if you don't feel like you're doing work that feels authentically yours, you're not going to be good at it. You're not Mm -hmm. going to serve the organization. That was totally the case. What were you hoping to find in some other professional endeavor that you weren't able to get out of Climate Solutions? I think it was a little, you know, my next step was was a little bit of a casting about as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, trying something new and seeing how it fit. I quickly became the director of sustainability for uh, a medium-sized civil engineering and planning firm based in Portland. And it was cool and heady in a certain way. And I did that for a while, but then the economy uh, crashed. I got laid off and took another job here and there, did some consulting. And it wasn't until I found my next thing that I realized that 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 the last thing, the strategic sustainability planning, wasn't really my sweet spot either. But Uh, then you found something else. I found something that felt more more genuine or authentic to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh What'd you do next? I did some sustainability plans for a few organizations. Um, and then that just that work just became really, really hard to find. <clears throat> and I started getting a little desperate. Had some issues with my ego. Like I wasn't uh, uh, doing the cutting edge work anymore and people weren't inviting me to speak at their conferences anymore. I was like, oh no, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, right. I've lost some part of myself, but it was pure, purely ego driven. 
So I took a job in uh, for a company that did management consulting for airports all over the world. There, it was based in San Francisco. I hated it. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. really, I, I, it affected my health. In fact, so I lasted a year there, and uh, I, I left there, and I just kind of let go. It's one of those moments where you just kind of let go of the shore, and you see what's going to happen. Um, and at some point, I decided I was going to go back to grad school again. But I ended up entering a program in, in Sweden that was focused around organizational learning and systems thinking and, and sustainability and um, the way some of the classes were run and facilitated uh, caught my attention. And that's what really got me interested. Um, by the end of that program, I realized I was not going to be a sustainability consultant any longer. I was going to be uh, more of an organizational consultant. And that's in a sense, what I've been doing ever since. So you've used the words authentic purpose now a couple of times. I'm wondering, how would you describe your work working with organizations? What does that translate into in terms of your authentic purpose? Well, at some level, it's a felt sense. At some level, it's kind of like where your deep gladness or your your personal joy intersects with your your personal purpose in the world. It's like, you know, you find your true vocation when those things merge. There's a lot of things you can do that are purpose-driven. The intersection is the part that, oh, that really feels like it's mine, you know? I feel Mm -hmm. like I I have something genuine that I feel like I can contribute there. People have to sort of define that for themselves. You you can't fight your way to it. You have to sort of let it emerge. Mm -hmm. Um, That process of emergence happens by slowing down by listening differently. It takes some reflection and some stillness. And, and I think that applies, can apply to organizations as well and groups of people. And so that's, that's kind of how I got to, to my authentic purpose. It was an, a process of emergence and everything I've done, I feel like has been purpose-driven. It's, it's things that I feel matter. And would you say that, like, that that's the final thing or, or do you imagine that there's another thing, five, 10 years, that is your new authentic purpose? Who knows? Who I could never have guessed I'd be doing what I'm doing now. Honestly, I could never have guessed in a million years. So that's, it's totally possible. It could be very different in a, another three years. There's part of me that thinks that I know some of what that looks like. And there's a part of me that says I don't know at all. Um, and I think that's really exciting. Yeah. I've also heard when you describe what you do with organizations, uh, that it's uh, helping good people do good work and helping them get over the barriers to seeing that good work happen. What do you see as some of the barriers that organizations or people face in terms of realizing the things that they want to accomplish? Um, Well, for one, it's getting to clarity. It's very, very common for groups to spend a lot of time and money and working together. And then, you know, you find out partway down the road that they weren't clear on what their shared expectations or shared goals or shared definition of success is, that's a real challenge. So I think it's really exciting. It'd be very powerful to help people in any way to become clearer uh, in in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It's hard to make decisions. It's hard to work with people. You know, we don't always get along. We don't always agree with each other. We don't see the world the same way. And it's just hard. So, you know, you're trying to do this good work in the world with all the best of intentions but at the same time, people are just struggling with these other sort of messy things. And um, 
I just want to be able to help them. I want to them to ease that process for them and and get more done, feel better about their work. It's interesting because there's there's a connection there to what you were doing at Climate Solutions and reaching out to agricultural communities and and trying to find some way to bring different groups with different perspectives together. Why does that matter to you? Mm. Yeah, why does it matter to me? You know, anybody that's looking around uh, at, at the world and paying attention should know that uh, the world feels very fragmented, right? It hurts me to even think about it. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it could be so much better. Yeah. You know, a, a work environment could be a, a truly enabling, healing environment. Mm-hmm. In addition to feeling like I, I, I came to work with this vision of wanting to really do something and working together with these other people Maybe we're not absolute best friends, but together we really accomplished something today. And wow, tomorrow we can we can do more of that. That's exciting to me. It's a tough one though, right? When you when you're thinking about conflict and reaching out to these different groups. And I'm glad that you see the potential there. But for the people are who are in it, um, for example, I was in an interaction with a colleague several years ago where I felt like something happened that really broke my trust. Help me understand the value of overcoming that conflict as opposed to just sweeping it under the rug. Yeah. I think there's a lot of power in taking uh, tensions or conflicts between two people or two groups on head on. Um, And there's a way to do it artfully because there's a real potential for each person to learn something new about the situation, about themselves, to uh, maybe uh, bring the relationship back together. The transformation potential is there because if you think about uh, any complex system, any group of people is a complex system, um, there's no change. There's no growth at all unless there is some tension or conflict. I mean, just, it, it, it's just the truest thing. If everybody agreed all the time, we were some monolith of uniformity, um, well, maybe the world would be great, <laughs> but it's not the world we live in. But we would never change. We'd never grow. We'd never innovate. We'd never do new great things together. You need some poking and prodding of that system. One way I've heard about it is like we're, we're, we're intentionally taking shallow dives into chaos. When we do that, uh, new connections are made um, and you know novel connections that we couldn't have anticipated we might not have seen before unless we had done that. And that's the way it is with conflict. It's like the conflict is how we grow and change in human systems. But I think some, you know, we could all use a lot more training around conflict and working with with conflict in a healthy way. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I think that what's, you know, beautiful about what you're doing is that you're seeing the potential for that and you've studied the artful ways in which you can transform that conflict into something productive because the risk is that if you address that conflict, it can feel harmful and painful and then actually it doesn't get any better it gets worse it gets or over it gets time. worse yeah, yeah, over time yeah. and so the sweeping it under the rug strategy makes sense if you don't have the the skills to transform that right you know i do when i do these trainings um on uh working with conflict one of the questions i'll ask is like i want everybody to just think for a minute and just think about what comes up with you for you when you hear the word conflict when i just say the word conflict and a lot of times what comes up for people is physical. Like even when I say the word conflict, I feel like vibration in my body. So it's a, 
it's not a, it's not a small thing. Yeah, I mean, and especially we're not, if you're we're not trained in, in how to work with it or deal with it. Especially if you're triggered or something, right. if it's the kind of conflict where you really care and you you feel heated, flush, you know, there's Absolutely, all sorts yeah. of right. feelings associated with that, and then yep. it's hard to be rational when you're having those feelings too. Yeah, yep. it's always going to be there, um, but it can be really counterproductive, can be painful, or it can be something we can learn to work with. One of the things I've heard about in uh, marriage as a good principle, and you kind of mentioned conflict is happening internationally, nationally, locally, in within your work, in within your family. But a concept I've been trying to practice is this idea that you should treat your partner with unconditional positive regard. Um, and it really helps me orient myself a, a little bit better. How far does that go and how far does that work? I mean, do you... Within the workplace, would that sort of concept also hold up, or does it need to be refined in some way? I, 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 um, <clears throat> I mean, I just think it, go, it goes a long, long way. The, the practice of it is 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 not always easy, but I think it. I use the term practice uh, intentionally because it is something you have to continually practice. Because what we do is we very quickly jump to conclusions about people or their intentions. We go up with people maybe have heard of the idea of the ladder of inference. Someone does something, they says something that corresponds to something that I maybe already have a bias around or whatever, but I jump to a conclusion very quickly. I move up the ladder one step. And then I, over, after that, everything they do is in some way proves out my initial belief about that person's intentions. Um, so the, the, the gesture is like walking down the ladder, but you can only do that by being curious. If I don't have curiosity, you know, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Some openness to learning, right? Yeah. Paul, you're also a leadership coach. I'm wondering if we could talk about leadership a little bit here. Um, you've been the executive director of a nonprofit and a director of sustainability, studied it, you coach people. How would you define good leadership and what are truly exceptional leaders doing today that sets them apart? Caring for the well-being of the whole. I think that's mm -hmm. a cool way mm -hmm. to think about leadership. My idea is to try to like uh, think about how to get the most out of these great people and, how, and 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 sort of hold this container together. Like if you think about this organizational as and all the structures around it, it's a container. How do I create the best container possible to make the best thing happen? I love that way to think about it. Um, one of my uh, <clears throat> inspirations is a, a consultant and an author named Peter Block. He talks about this idea of one of the things a leader can do is they can help define the nature of the conversation. They can attend to the quality of the dialogue and the conversation or the gathering or the experience, whether you're the, the executive or the supervisor or you're just you're, you're running a meeting. And that's a really interesting way to think about a leader. That last idea you had segues into another question I have, you know, I I think for a lot of people, when they think of leadership, they think of the highest position in the organization, you know, whether that be the CEO, executive director, or president, or governor, or whatever. Um, but most people aren't in that position. So for the folks who aren't uh, leaders, how does that change? What, what can they be doing to be better leaders? Yeah. Well, the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, we're all kind of like fractals of each other in one way or another in some way. It's a little bit esoteric, but 
that leader who's at the top of the organization also has a little bit of follower in them. The same way um, someone who might be considered non-leader, a follower uh, in an organization has leadership in them too. That's part of who they are. They're leaders in other contexts in their lives. So they have access to that. So they can bring that quality of themselves to any situation. We're all teacher, we're all follower. And so I might feel like there's something that needs to be attended to in this, in my group, in my organization. Like we've been going along this way, but this just this way doesn't seem like it's right for us anymore. And so no, something needs to be different. So maybe that person goes off and tries something. They, they have a conversation with someone about it. What if we did it this way? Or maybe they, they did a little bit of a pilot somewhere in the organization, got some permission to do it, or maybe they didn't have permission to do it. And they brought a couple other peers around them. They created a little bit of a community practice. They demonstrated the worthiness of their effort. And over time, they got some support from, from traditional leadership. So we can ex- exercise that in all kinds of different ways, just by calling into the into the world like some new future, some new possibility. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting idea. That actually reminds me in some ways of um, the work of a former podcast guest and the one who founded the MBA school we both went to, uh, Gifford Pinchot III, and his idea of entrepreneurship, that sometimes uh, you can be a, an entrepreneur within your organization um, and that whether or not you're in a leadership position, there might be some way in which you see a better way for the organization to be and take the initiative to make it that way. Yeah, I missed that course, unfortunately, but (laughs) I get the idea and I like it a lot. Yeah. So why should someone who has purpose care about building leadership skills? Oh, uh, you know, maybe there's a couple of ways to look at this, but probably dozens, but uh, at one level, I think if you're really purpose-driven, if, if, if like, if the purpose is some purpose is at the heart of everything you do, um, you're always interested in, in how you can learn and grow and develop. You know, one of the uh, leadership capacities of the 21st century is relational capacities. Like it or not, you know, workplaces are volunteer environments and they just, they're not rational as much as we'd like to think. They're, the, the people are, are, are in them and people are messy and we're always in relationship to people, in relation to people, whether there are supervisors our peers, our people that report to us, or our clients, or customers. Um, so, understanding what it means to be in relationship to people, and to how to attend to relationships, to how to understand how individuals think and how groups function, the dynamics of organizations. That's a that's a I would call an advanced or twenty first century leadership capacity, and mm-hmm. I think that that's just going to help anybody that's purpose driven deliver on their their purpose. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting as I think about that in relationship to myself, I'm also a a climate solutions sort of person. And so if I want to be effective at making change with respect to having a healthy planet and climate, having those leadership skills helps me advance those ideas better. And not necessarily that I need to have the answers, but I need to be able to work with people to get things done. Right. Right. We hinted on this earlier, but it seems like good organizations have some sort of purpose that is well articulated and distilled, but you know, as individuals, as we're going along and have some sort of purpose that might not be perfectly aligned with an organization's purpose. So how does an individual be authentic to their purpose in the context of that organization? 
as long as it's not misalignment, you know, overall that I can get behind the purpose of this organization, but my, I have my own genuine interests and, and directions. Um, that's a question. Can, can they, is it important enough for them that, uh, they either need to leave the organization or need to do something about it inside their organization. So do you have a barometer that you use? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've, you've had that for yourself, but you're a leadership coach too. And so, you know, what, what advice do you give to people who are facing that dilemma? It's tough because sometimes you don't have the grace or flexibility to just, just go live your purpose. Um, some people can, you can just drop everything and throw caution to the wind and let go of the shore. And that's, I'm going to do my thing. And I think that's a cool thing to do depending on your circumstances. Maybe you're supporting people financially and you just can't do that. Um, but it can be a re- it's been a struggle for me. Like the job I took in San Francisco just didn't feel purpose-driven enough for me. And it was, it, it was painful. And, <laughs> and that was the less the nature of the job itself and more just your relationship to the nature of the job? Yeah, I, <clears throat> um, well, that's a good question. Part of it was the environment. Part of it is that I couldn't live up to my purpose and, and, and desired intent there. I couldn't achieve what I wanted to do. Um, but part of it was the organization wasn't purpose-driven. Yeah. It wasn't at its core. What can you do? I realize it's not possible in all circumstances, but what can you do to infuse purpose into an organization like that? Yeah. I mean, people can do any number of things, of course, you know, and let's say you're super uh passionate about climate and sustainability, but you're in an organization that that's not their thing. Can you start a little side group, a green group? Can you try to get some permission for it? Maybe eventually some budget. Can you start a a book club? Can you just be brave enough to call the question on some things inside the organization that aren't quite working, that uh, aren't healthy? There's a, there's a lot you can do. And some people do a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, if you were to fast forward for 10 years, you know, and still you're doing what you're doing now, you're, you're an organizational consultant, leadership coach. Um, what does success look like for you? Well, I mean, any consultant is interested in uh, long-term impact. And this is a challenge with uh, being a consultant. Uh, some of your gigs are long-term and lots of them are very, very short-term. But to be able to become more of a a trusted partner with certain organizations or certain coalitions or what have you. Um, someone they call upon at times because we've developed a real trust and partnership. The people inside those organizations feel like they're having their, yeah, their health is attended to and their need. I'd like to be involved at the systemic level with those kinds of uh, clients. I want to see more of them and feel like I can see that partnership evolve where we're each learning from each other along the way. Well, Paul, do you have any closing advice for people looking to find and live out a meaningful life? I do. Um, slowing down. If a person has the freedom and the economic flexibility to, to go out and, and test things and try things, to slow down, to get out of the fast pace and go on a bit of a self-reflective journey of exploration for your purpose, I think those can be very powerful things. Hopefully they'll find that that place that feels like they're an authentic thing to do, you know? Yeah. Thank you, Paul. I it's, really it's appreciate you. It's my pleasure. You. It's been interesting to think about and reflect on this stuff. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and the last episode of 2019. 
If you're interested in getting in touch with Paul about organizational consulting or leadership coaching, you can reach out to him at the Athena Group at athenaplace.com. I'll leave a link to his website in the show notes. A quick note about me. Wow, it has been tough to get both this podcast published and try to finish out my ebook while also working full-time and trying to be the best parent and spouse I can be. Life is full. As a result, I'm going to be taking a little time off to finish out my ebook so that you can finally download the copy you've been waiting for. Be on the lookout for more from me in 2020, but also expect some delays in fresh episodes. Before I sign off, I want to say that I hope you're walking away with some ideas and inspiration for living a meaningful life yourself. If you are, please share this podcast on social media or with a friend who you think would really get something out of it. And remember that whether you are at the top of the organization or the bottom, leadership is not reserved for the top. You can lead too. Until next time, thanks again for listening to this episode of Ignited with Meaning, where we're exploring the terrain of a meaningful life, taking steps to become our best selves, and finding more happiness, passion, and fulfillment along the way. Mm -hmm.